Good day, everyone. This is year 2008, June 5th, and again, we have the Ontolog Invited Speaker Presentation Session. We have today with us Professor William McCarthy from Michigan State University. Um, Professor McCarthy will be uh, giving a talk entitled Ontologically Driven Standards Development for Business Process Systems. Uh, before we go into that, uh, let's maybe go around and have people introduce themselves. Uh, I will go down uh, the attendee list, so let's start with Bill. Bill? Okay, I'm Bill McCarthy. I'm an accounting professor at Michigan State University and um, a person who uh, – was doing some academic work in accounting on data modeling and then uh, became very interested in the ontology field and joined up with Peter and a number of other people on Ontolog a number of years ago. Um, about the year 2002 or 2001, I got drawn into standards work with EBXML and then followed that up with some other UNC fact work and then some ISO work. And it's that work that I'm going to be talking about today. Thank you very much, Bill. Uh, I'm Peter Yem, uh, one of the co-conveners of the Ontolog Forum. And, uh, on my, in my other life, I'm, I also run a, an ISP called CIM3 that supports uh, distributed collaboration. So, uh, Thomas? Yeah, my name is Thomas Bruner. I'm from Novartis Pharmaceuticals. Um, I'm interested in uh, getting uh, from this presentation is really getting a handle of what it takes to really make an ontology useful, especially when you have complex domains. Frank? This is Frank Avidras. I'm an enterprise architect, and my interest in, very much interested in the REA ontology from a standpoint of business process ontologies. I work uh, for NASA and the Air Force. Thank you, Frank. David? Hi, I'm David Harris. Uh, I'm an employee of Blackstone Technology Group. Uh, just an interested budding technologist interested in ontologies. Thanks, David. Kurt? Kurt? You may be on mute. Uh, Kurt? Okay, let's get back to Kurt later. Pat? Pat Cassidy? Yeah, hi. I'm an ontologist working by myself. Uh, I'm particularly interested in the uh, structure of the foundation ontology and how it relates to language. Thanks, Pat. Michelle? Yes, this is Michelle Raymond. I'm a researcher for Honeywell Labs. Um, also wear multiple, uh, wear other hats in other domains. Uh, as far as business process, I have an interest there, both within the enterprise architecture and how it ties there, uh, and then also specifically uh, extending process into process control. Uh, I don't think that'll be the extent of the, or the scope here. What interests me within the scope of the, the slides that I went over is uh, specifically the commitment um, and how that is tied to the events and how those go back to the resources and are built into the into your model. Thank you, Michelle. Uh, Rafi? 
Uh, yes, uh, Professor McCarthy, I am very happy. I am Dr. Ravi Sharma. I am uh, a senior enterprise uh, architect at Vengent, which is a federal, uh, which is a federal contracting space for enterprise architecture, business process modeling, and many other applications. My interest in ontology are about a year old, thanks to Peter and the Ontolog Forum. And I am uh, interested in your talk from two, per two or three perspectives. One is, where do we go uh, business viewpoint in the um, execution of what was then earlier taken in EDXML as uh, value chain, supply chain processes examples? How do we translate that into... Uh, financial um, aspect of business processes, such as uh, what you see in uh, SWIFT or other things that the banks understand, or Basel, uh, how to execute um, GAAP or whatever they are called, general accounting practices, in what might be a now universal adoption into financial regime, and then to use your rich UMM and UML concepts to execute those business processes across the globe. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Robbie. Uh, Bob? I'm a retired professor and uh, was involved with process and process management. Uh, really intrigued now that I'm working with the analog forum group called Building Service Performance. We're trying to build a simple ontology that the Rotary Club can understand, and I'm interested in tying the accounting system for uh, energy and water and other critical uh, resources back into uh, accounting systems and reports that the CEO and the chief operating officer receive. So I'm really looking forward to Bill's uh, continued discussion with the Cookie Monster. Thank you, Bob. Uh, Doug, Doug Holmes. I'm Doug Holmes, uh, Java Professionals. Uh, I tend to see ontologies as knowledge bases or the, the foundation for knowledge base uh, for building computer systems and for interoperability of other systems. Thank you, Doug. Evan? Hi, uh, Evan Wallace from the Manufacturing Engineering Laboratory at NIST. Uh, and I'm interested in... Um, how ontologies relate to core components and other EBXML technologies. So this is an interesting talk for me. Thanks. Thanks, Evan. Uh, Kate? Hi, Catherine Goodyear. I'm uh, with NCI Incorporated, and I'm an ontologist uh, working for the federal government, uh, several different IC kind of communities. I am very interested in uh, Bill's work and have followed it for many years and recently had the joy of having my daughter come home with an accounting textbook that referenced Bill's work. I was very excited to see that. Wow. Thanks, Kate. Uh, let's go back to see if uh, Kurt is, is available or have unmuted this phone. Kurt? Um, yes, I'm here. Right. Yes, um, yeah, please I'm... introduce yourself. You need to speak up a little bit. Okay, I'll talk even louder. 
Yep, uh, my name is Kirk Conrad. I'm an independent consultant here in the Silicon Valley area and uh, been following this subject for, I'd say, a few years now and interested in Bill's latest installment. Does that answer enough questions? Yes, one more. Uh, and for everyone's information, uh, Kurt, uh, Leo, and myself are the th uh, sort of the, the, the first people that, that brought uh, this version of Ontolog Forum together. So uh, Kurt is one of my co-conveners of Ontolog. Okay, uh, did we miss anyone? Uh, who is who else is online? Whom I'm have here, Peter. Uh, is that Todd? Yes, it is. Okay, I'm having Todd, problems with ahead. the phone. Yes, Hi, I'm Todd uh, Schneider. I'm from Raytheon, and I've been interested in this subject, oh, probably from second grade. However, <laughs> uh, I want to thank Peter for providing this opportunity to learn lots more about the different areas and different approaches that are taking place, in particular from this area for uh, – business processes, I'm interested in the context of enterprise architecture, as, as I believe Ravi uh, suggested earlier. And another aspect is I'd like to learn more about how, if any ontology is going to be presented by uh, Bill, how we came about them. So thank you, Peter. Thanks, Todd. Uh, uh, Peter? Yes. I'm gonna I'm gonna hang up on this line and join on another one because on the other one the so stupid hardware wouldn't let me use the microphone. Okay. So. All right. Thank you. Right. Uh, who else is online that uh, who hasn't introduced himself? And just Steve Ray's here. Oh, hi, Steve. Go ahead. Hi. Okay. Um, well, uh, I work at the same place Evan Wallace works in the manufacturing engineering lab at NIST, and uh, I've heard Bill before, and I'm particularly interested to hear his thoughts on uh, sort of our livelihood, which is standard, so um, since we see ontologies as, I think, uh, a very important technology for the next generation of standards, I've always been interested in that aspect of it. Thanks, Steve. Uh, all right, uh, it's Martin Stricker from Germany, or uh, Susan Matney of the University of Utah online with us? No? Then uh, is anybody else online who hasn't had a chance to introduce himself or herself? If not, then uh, let's proceed uh, straight to uh, Bill's talk. And I'm bringing up the slides now. And as I mentioned before, uh, you could either run your slides on your own desktop, especially if you're behind corporate firewalls, or you could go to the shared screen with us. And let's hold off all uh, questions and answers until Bill's talk is over. But in the meantime, we have a chat session, and you can sort of accumulate your uh, comments there as well. So uh, are we ready to start, Bill? Yes, I am. Oh, all yours. Okay. Go ahead. Um, well, thank you, people, um, for listening today. I just wanted to um, thank Peter again for the opportunity to sort of talk about some of these things. Um, I did talk on Ontolog once before, and that was three and a half years ago, and I must admit in doing the, uh, in doing the preparation for this, I thought, well, I, I won't repeat anything I did then. 
And uh, this comes from a college teacher, believe it or not, whose students don't remember on Thursday what he talked about on Tuesday. Um, so I, I uh, quickly realized that that probably wouldn't be a good idea. And for some folks who've heard some of this before, um, you might see some repetition in the first part of the um, of the presentation, especially with um, some of the slides that sort of explain the very basic concepts of the REA ontology and how it's been implemented in um, and ISO, and then um, how it's going to be implemented in some of the, the UN CFAC work. So, um, again, I'm an accounting systems teacher, a professor at Michigan State University who's been drawn into the standards work. Um, when EBXML started, uh, probably five months into it, somebody came up to me and said, we need a business process model uh, that looks like uh, an entity relationship model or a UML class diagram. And we heard you had one, so come join us. And... Um, so I was on the EBXML team for a while. Um, I was on part of the team where they drew the line below us, so we didn't get actually implemented in the specification. We just had a, a bunch of tech reports. But after that, I uh, moved right into the UNC fact work uh, with the UMM and then um, became interested in ISO, specifically the Open EDI group, and started working with them as, as, a, as, a, as a result of that. Um, I am uh, what I would call an enterprise ontologist, a budding enterprise ontologist in computer science, but I put two question marks after that because um, I suspect that 70 or 80 percent of my audience today has better credentials in those two fields than I do, and I just wanted to sort of um, acknowledge that uh, uh, although I got a, uh, a Ph.D. degree once upon a time, wasn't mostly accounting. I, I, I do know an awful lot about certain fields in computer science, but um, not some of the hardcore ontology parts at the very high end of the spectrum as well as I ought to. Um, and I, um, I do know an awful lot about accounting and accounting practice. So, Okay, Peter, can we uh, go to slide number two, please? All right. Um, this is sort of a standard warning that I give people when we talk about uh, the work that I do. It's actually a uh, different from what you might have actually seen in sophomore-level accounting, except uh, some schools actually teach it this way now um, in sophomore-level accounting, but they're certainly in the vast, vast minority. We're going to be talking today about um, what accounting does in a very strong economic sense. In other words, what are the basic transactions that occur to a company um, that they actually keep account of and that they publish their financial statements to at the end of the year? But uh, the REA ontology is much more than accounting. It's, it's really much more aimed at um, accounting as a subset of the enterprise on enterprise uh, decision makers. So it's, it's very much, um, in my estimation at least, also an enterprise ontology. What you won't hear an awful lot of discussion about today is the, um, the bookkeeping mechanisms that have been around for 500 years um, that really are sort of a way of keeping track of individual transactions based on a simple division of the classic accounting equation for those of people who have never had to endure an accounting class. It's assets equals liabilities plus owner's equity. And um, what the classic bookkeeping class in either high school or college does is takes a transaction and doesn't try to look at it and say, oh, that's a person doing this or that's a person giving money to someone else. What they do is they always interpret what's going on in terms of divisions of that basic accounting equation. That's what bookkeeping does, and I'm going to be um, sort of not doing that today. And we'll talk about how to reconcile those two things um, actually at the end. So REA is um, it just isn't a lunatic fringe set of ideas. Um, it's actually been around for 25 years um, and published in 
peer-reviewed journals in accounting, and we'll talk about it at the very end. Um, there's a lot of accounting systems classes that use it, and even some non-accounting systems classes. So, But it is a very different view of accounting um, than you might see from the classic uh, uh, double-entry class that you might take at the high school, community college, or as a, as a sophomore. Okay, now let me... Um, I'm supposed to be, yeah, this is my elevator pitch slide, and I have a daughter who actually works in marketing, and she said, Dad, that an elevator pitch can't be 50 slides, so um, it's just this one slide. I want to talk about really quickly what it is I'm going to talk about today. I want to talk about what REA is and how it's used in standards. So see, these are some of the definitions that I'm going to use. And um, we be on the next slide? Oh, I'm sorry, slide number three. Sorry about that. The one with the elevator picture on the right. Got it. So, um my definition of ontology is actually John, uh, John Soa's definition, a category of interest in a domain and the relationships among them. Um, REA is what's called the domain ontology. It's not an upper-level ontology. It's a listing of the things of interest in the accounting and enterprise systems domain and how they all connect to each other. Um, it is not uh, – when I use the word ontology, I don't use it in the very specific and um, – stringent sense that somebody like Adam Peace or John Sowell would use uh, where it's a shared conceptualization that's formally defined in a formal language. Um, although at, certainly at the end of the talk, one of the, the uh, strong criticisms I've heard of the work is it needs to go that way. And I'm hoping some people um, on the call will um, echo some of those sentiments and give me some directions because certainly that's where the ontology is, um, is headed in the next uh, year or two years. On the uh, on slide number three, the second bullet says it's um, it's a business enterprise, an economic and ontology with three different parts, and that's how this um, presentation is actually going to be structured. It's probably important to understand at the beginning. Um, the ontology is, is basically a set of UML class diagrams that define the categories of interest and how those relate to each other. But those categories quickly multiply and become somewhat complex. So in an attempt to, uh, to, to simplify them at least a little bit, I'm going to use color coding um, in the presentation today. And actually, this color coding is also the way um, that we teach REA. It's probably not found its way into any textbooks, so there was a textbook reference earlier. Um, but I think in at least one of the textbooks, the five or six leading accounting systems textbooks either have chapters or whole themes dedicated to teaching accounting systems this way. Um, but like I said, it, it gets very complex quickly. So what I'm going to do today is use colors. And when I use the green colors in a class diagram, that very simply means the basic transactions um, that any two trading partners, one person gets money, the other person gets goods. When I use the yellow colors, I'm going to say um, those are policies that govern those transactions. So if one person gets money and the other person gets goods, there might be policies about that that say, for instance, um, only a manager, only a person of, who's typed as a manager is allowed to give out money more than $1,000. Or only a person who's typed as a dangerous cargo certified driver is allowed to drive a truck that has a category, category of goods on it that's certified as, um, as dangerous goods. So there are policies that surround those basic transactions. And then in purple, we'll actually have the scheduled plans. So if I talked about a payment, um, it's also possible to talk about a payment that is going to occur two days from now. In other words, um, if you agree to ship me some goods on Thursday of next week, I will agree to pay you on Friday. 
and actually um, we'll take these iteratively. I'll take the first one, the basic REA model that's been around for quite a while, and then the second two, the ones in yellow and purple, the plans and um, the policies and the plans are ones that have been sort of introduced via my standards work. Um, I've gotten most of these ideas from um, people in the standards arena, but a lot of it's actually reflected in um, accounting theory textbooks as well. I want to mention that REA is both a positive and a prescriptive accounting theory. Um, those are academic terms, but what I mean by a positive term, it means it's an attempt to describe in a UML class diagram sense what actually goes on in business, in a business process. And the way it was actually done was by looking at other business processes. So if you ask me, uh, for instance, is SAP an REA-oriented system, I would have to answer two ways. I would say, well, in a prescriptive sense, the people probably designing SAP or any other ERP system with the exception of Workday probably never sat down with these class diagrams and did their descriptions from them. They just evolved from older classes of systems up. Whoa. So um, when I say it's a descriptive sense, I think it's a pretty good description of the way systems have worked, evolving from sort of the classic file-oriented systems up to the um, the uh, enterprise systems and the collaboration space systems of today. But it's also a way, if you were designing a new system, that you could actually take a look at it. Okay. Um, I'm going to talk today really more about the standards work, but there are a number of academic papers um, that if you click on my website um, and uh, you'll see the, all of these are uh, available, the ones that have been published and the ones that are in working paper. Okay, And then at the end, sort of a realization that I think something that a lot of people are going to tell me at the end of today, um, you need to move this thing up uh, the, the interoperability scale from sort of frame-based semantics up to logic-based semantics, which is sort of the, um, the, the direction, as I mentioned, we're going in. Okay, let's, can we move over to slide number four then, Peter? Okay, here's a basic model of the elementary uh, REA model. It's a basic model of an exchange or a business process. And the, uh, if you're wondering where the acronym comes from, it comes from the right, uh, the left to right orientation. It says that a business process at its most base level is made up of two economic events, each of which has a resource, and each of which has two economic agents participating. So the R, economic resource, the E, economic event, and the A, economic agent, is where the original um, paper and the acronym uh, got it from. Now, that's very abstract, and so what I always do, and actually a few people have already referenced this, um, is I always show with people what I mean by this basic business process template by using an example. And um, I've actually used the same example for probably the last 10 years or 15 years. Um, and when I don't use this one, actually some people sometimes get upset. I did a presentation for OMG, and three people left the room because they said the, uh, the puppets weren't there when they were supposed to. So I'm going to explain what I meant by economic resource, economic event, and economic agent with an example. So, Peter, if we can slip over to um, slide number five. So here is my basic business process model, okay? Now, for those of you who um, have been on Mars for 50 years or don't have children or something else like that, these might be new characters, but I suspect for many of you, um, they're quite familiar. The character on the left, as you're looking on the screen, is uh, the famous Cookie Monster, and the character on the right is Elmo. And I actually, uh, often when I do a presentation, use the uh, Sesame Street characters as exemplars for different roles that people play in business processes. And I try to use the same first letter 
So C, the cookie monster, is my customer. So C is for cookie monster, and C is for customer. And then E, Elmo, is my entrepreneur, although in this case he's going to play the role of some employees that work for the entrepreneur, like a salesperson or a cashier. So the question I always have when I start off when I ask my students, and some of you might have heard it before, if you look at the cookie monster on the left there, he's got a dollar bill. And um, I always ask people, well, is that a happy cookie monster? And the answer always is no. Because unlike us, unlike people, um, cookie monsters aren't very happy with money. They only want cookies. So um, in economic terms, an REA is very much of a microeconomic ontology. It's based on concepts from classic, neoclassical microeconomics. Uh, the cookie monster has not reached his highest level of utility, and he's looking to engage in commerce or an exchange. Quite conveniently, he has an entrepreneur next, right next to him, Elmo, who actually happens to be in the business of selling cookies. So we sort of set the stage here for an economic exchange. Okay, Peter, can you um, actually go to the next slide, please? Number six. Now, if you look at number six, I'm going to put this exchange down in two parts. Um, accountants call these transactions. In REA, they're called an economic event, and they always occur in some kind of symmetrical give and take um, there's no such thing as a free lunch here. So um, what's going to happen first, if you have those two people who want to engage in commerce, is that uh, Elmo is going to send the cookie monster over, excuse me, the cookie over to the cookie monster. Um, now, we can call that a shipment, and I'm doing that deliberately today. But normally in accountant's uh, terms, we would call that a sale. It's a sale to um, uh Elmo, and it's actually a purchase to the cookie monster, and that's why I've called it a shipment, which is a neutral term that can actually be grafted into both of those. So um, we have the cookie or the inventory going from the entrepreneur over to the sale. Now, um, that's the reality, if you can imagine that's a real thing in front of you, and the model of that in REA terms is actually on the next slide, so if you could advance to number seven, Peter. Now, here again, you see the left-to-right um, economic resource, economic event, and then two economic agents. But you've actually seen both parts of the equation. Um, it's symmetrical, again, sort of going with the economic idea that you don't get anything without giving something up. And so um, the cookie here is the economic resource. It's something of value. Um, the event is where one party lets go of the economic resource or gives it up, and the other party gains possession of it, which you saw with the cookie going from Elmo to over to the cookie monster. And then the, um, the two boxes are in the UML class diagram on the right are actually the people who are actually engaging in this transaction. And you can see the person who provides the cookie in this particular case is the entrepreneur, okay, and the person who receives uh, the cookie is the customer. Remember when I say entrepreneur, that's Elmo, E for Elmo and E for entrepreneur, and the customer is Cookie Monster, so C for customer and C for Cookie Monster. All right, so there is an REA model, very simple. Um, in my classes, we can do this on the first day of class, um, of what you just saw. Now, if you, in fact, had this where the cookie went from um, Elmo to the Cookie Monster later on, perhaps instantaneously or perhaps as late as a month or two months down, depending upon the, uh, the credit terms, um, you'd see a second transaction, which is on the next page as a picture. So, Peter, can you advance to slide number eight, please?
again, going back to the idea there's no such thing as a free lunch. Um, once Cookie Monster eats the cookie, um, he then has to pay for the cookie. So what you have here is now a dollar or some kind of money going from over from the Cookie Monster over to Elmo. And again, this is another economic event which can be modeled with a mirror image of the REA pattern. So if Peter, if you advance to the next slide, see how we model this cash disbursement or payment. We've now filled in the bottom part of the slide, okay? So the initiating transaction was the cookies getting shipped. The terminating transaction, as it turns out here, is the cash going. Um, so the customer, in this particular case, Cookie Monster, provides the cash, and the entrepreneur, in this particular case, receives the cash. So you have cash payment. Cash is the resource. Payment is the event. And the uh, two agents are the entrepreneur and the customer. And, again, the REA comes from... Um, the resource, the event, and the agent. Now, I want you to note as you look at the, all of this, they're all in green, which if um, we remember the color coding that I was going to do at the front end, everything that I have in this uh, relatively bright green here concerns the modeling of basic exchanges or business processes. This is classic accounts, and it hits an accounting system. They would actually hit usually a transaction processing system, but very quickly they would get forwarded up to the general ledger, and you could have um, accounting entries into the general ledger. I'm not going to um, test my accounting knowledge here, but you would be debiting accounts uh, receivable and crediting the inventory and then uh, debiting revenue processes. And um, I've got the other one offhand right now. So, okay. So, um you'd see that these are the classic exchanges that any accounting system would actually keep track of, except instead of doing accounts and debits and credits, we're actually modeling the natural kinds that are occurring here, the real things, the real people, and the real occurrences in time as you go on. Okay, Peter, could you advance the next slide, please? So um, here is uh, a... Um, an M, a zero level of the slide, okay? And then um, this very simply means that um, you're actually showing the actual transactions that occur. And the one I have in the blue circle there on slide number 10 in the shipment table just very simply says that um, once upon a time, a real customer, in this particular case, I put it in blue because that's Cookie Monster, C987 had a real uh, transaction with a real entrepreneur, E1234. That would be a, a representation of Elmo. Um, on invoice number I1, and if you wanted to actually figure out the rest of the story, the $14.75, you can sort of, uh, this is a relational database implementation of the class diagram, comes from very simply, if you go to the top right, you can see that on invoice number I1, I bought five of product number P2, which cost $0.95. Cents. So five times 95 is um, $4.75, and I also bought 10 of P3, which is a dollar, so it would be $4.75 plus $10. That amounts for the $14.75. And then if you go over to one of the other tables, which is a partial representation of the class diagram, you could even start to figure out that um, this person paid for this $14.75 with one payment. Um, but later on, somebody paid 10% down and 90% later. So terms like 210 net 30 or something else like that that we often do in accounting can actually be captured in the specification as well, the expected behavior. Okay? All right. If you could advance on to the next slide then, Peter. Okay? So um, this is a return to the elevator theme. What REA is a basic ontology, is a pattern for a business process. And the, the three questions you almost ask immediately about a question was, who was involved? 
what was involved, the who is the economic agent, the what is the, um, the economic resource, and the when are the economic events. Now, and I actually modeled these um, in the Open EDI. It's part four, the accounting and economic ontology. I actually started off with that pattern, and then I decomposed some of them, so I actually have taxonomies in the um, – it's uh, 159.44-4. It's the uh, ISO uh, standard um, for Open EDI uh, accounting and economic ontology. And um, I thought I would just very quickly show these. However, these are not normative. These are just suggested taxonomies. So let me do the uh, the next slide, if you would, Peter. It's um, slide number 12. It just very simply shows you the subtypes possible. And again, these are not normative um, for economic resource. Um, Open EDI, um, very quickly, when they did part one of the standard, defined um, an economic resource. They actually called it um, a good, um, as something a good, a service, or a right. So you can see. And economic resources have a component process, so that a classic economic resource, like a cookie, would have components to the cookies. It would have the ingredients of the cookies. It would have the fact that the ingredients have been cooked. It might have the fact that the ingredients have been cooked and delivered. It might have the fact that the, the ingredients have been cooked and delivered and have been advertised and have some kind of a warranty on them. So that classically in economics, a good that you get, either a good, a service, or a right, is a bundle of things, each of which and each component of that bundle is assembled in part of the business process excuse me, in part of the value chain in separate business processes. So the fact that they were um, cooked might have been done in a conversion business process. The fact that they were advertised might have been done in an advertising business process. The fact that they were delivered might have been done in a logistics process. So you can see the recursive relationship at the top of this slide here, slide number 12, um, says that an economic resource can consist of other types of economic resources. So there's definitely in the standard a component structure to economic resources. That actually comes from um, economic theory from an economist called Lancaster, who um, in the 60s characterized things that people desire as bundles of goods, um, and it's the bundles of goods that you need to identify. Okay? So, again, goods, services, and rights, that's as far as the, uh, the open EDI standard goes. The listing on the third level of the hierarchy here are just very simply examples. Okay, Peter, if you could advance to slide number 13, please. We have the same kind of a, um, a hierarchy here, except for economic agents. This is not actually from the standard. In the standard, economic agents is called person um, in open EDI. And that's one of the big problems of trying to take academic or theoretical work and put it into standards, or for that matter, going across standards. So, for instance, um, what I have here is economic agent in open EDI is called a person. And when I do that in, um, in UN uh, CFAC and the UMM, it's called um, a partner or a partner type. So um, we have a, a, a whole slew of synonyms. And quite frankly, I'd welcome anybody's advice um, at the end of how to sort of try to narrow these downs. Everybody is all for aligning these terms as long as you take their term to base the alignment on. And um, that's actually one of the big problems. Here, so we have on on this slide, on slide number 13, a decomposition of agent into partner, regulator, and third party. And this was actually on the standard in 159.44-1 before I ever joined the team. And it was a published standard, so I had no, uh, no discretion here about coming in and trying to use different terms. So again, when this is actually in, um, 
the open EDI ontology, it doesn't say economic agent up there. It says um, person. And instead of saying economic agent type, it says uh, business role. But I can't use those in the standard, otherwise I just confuse you as if I flip back and forth from uh, one person to another. Okay, Peter, if you could then advance, please, to slide number 14. Okay, so we're returning back to the uh, the theme again here of the elevator pitch, which is that um, it's a pattern for a business process, and it's the categories and how they relate to each other. The first three answer the question of who was involved, what was involved, and when was it done. Now, the next component of the structure um, of the ontology starts to answer the questions Okay, those are the basic transactions. Now, let's take a look at them over the course of time. In other words, um, let's take a look at them as they actually occur. Let's take a look at them as the business rules say they should occur. And then let's take a look at them um, in terms of the way they're scheduled to occur. And again, to sort of uh, refresh people as we take a look at this, the past and the near present on this slide on slide number 14, are going to be in green colors, and you've already seen one of those. Um, the policy future will be in the yellow, and then the scheduled future will be actually in the purple. Okay? All right, Peter, if you could advance the slide, please. Slide number 15. Now, slide number 15 very simply reiterates what I just did. It doesn't show you the middle one or the scheduled one. It just shows you the bottom, the one we just took a look at with the Cookie Monster example, the R, E, and A, the two um, symmetrical patterns there. And then the top very simply shows you um, what the policies could be if we relate those policies to each other. Now, the way we derive policies is we take what are called types or type images, and that gives us the what could be or what the should be. So for the next few slides, I'm very simply going to talk about that component of the ontology, the policy infrastructure, so to speak. Okay, Peter, if you could advance, please, to slide number 16. I'm going to go over this one really quick. This is actually from a recent paper that um, Hedo Hertzson and myself just published, and it was called Policy Level Specification in REA Enterprise Systems, and it actually takes and explains in very long detail about how this whole process works of taking basic structures, like a basic resource and two basic agents, and then taking type images of those and connecting them. The T and the G at the top mean types and groups which are actually two different types of data modeling ways of abstracting. They, they, um, they actually behave quite similar. Um, I'm going to just use the concept of a type today if you want to know what the, the difference is. Like I said, there's a whole paper that explains those, which you can get, get a reference from and an actual copy from, um, from my website. Okay, Peter, then if you would advance to slide number 17, please. Yep. This is very much an ontologue slide. Um, because if there's any recurring theme on ontolog, it's that the computer science ontologies of today reflect the thousands of years of philosophical thought of the past. And exactly what we do when we take type images is do nothing more than was done in my undergraduate metaphysics class um, when my professor started talking about the concept of horses relating to the concept of hoarseness. Okay? It's very simply... Um, taking a type of a real thing and describing that type as a conceptual abstraction that indicates its ideal or its grouped properties. Now, in classic philosophy, we call this the archetypal essence of a business object, like what are the customer types that we have? What are the resource types that we have? When we offer sales, do we have big sales? Do we have wholesale sales? Do we have retail sales? What are the types of sales that we do? 
So what we actually do on slide number 17 is take the basic things that we saw in green before and typify them, that's the term that we use, um, to obtain their type images and use those to describe their ideal or their grouped properties. Okay, Peter, if you can group, move over to slide number 18, please. And again, to sort of return to my theme of color on slide number 18, the basic structures, the ones we saw with the Cookie Monster and Elmo, um, the R, E's, and A's are shown here in green. We've already taken a look at that. The typing abstraction in REA and in ISO 159.44 is given a, an association name of typify. And then the connections between the types are called policy connections. In other words, you can take a look at... Um, Economic agent type, for instance, if that was an employee, the agent types could be something like cashier and manager. If the economic event was a sale, it could be something like big sale and small sale. And the company then might have a policy that said big sales, i.e., those over $5,000, have to be okayed only by a manager. They may never be okayed by a cashier. Okay, so what we try to do is you take the rules for the business rules and the policies as much as you can and you try to derive them by abstracting up about their typed properties and then connecting them. Um, now, in accounting terms, um, these are often called internal control policies um, that say something that the person who does this cannot be the person who does that. It's called separation of duties. Um, or you might have a rule that says only cashiers are allowed to sign checks or something else like that. And one of the interesting um, research endeavors in REA is trying to get those internal control policies out of the head of the auditor of the people working and into the automated specification of the system as either um, preventative controls, in other words, they're never allowed to exist, or detective controls that sort of give the auditor or someone else an idea that perhaps some of the business rules haven't been working exactly as planned. And to the extent you can put the type images in and connect them with policies, you afford that opportunity in the automated specification of the system. Okay? All right. This is the sort of the M2 level of um, a business process, showing the basic things in green and the yellow things, um, uh, the policies that govern it. Now, that's still pretty abstract to go to slide number 19, Peter. Now you can see how things get complicated very quickly. Here is an actual business process. This is a revenue process for a company that runs expeditions. And you can see in the yellow, we actually have the policies there that show exactly what are the policies governing how this business is supposed to take place. Now, this particular company is a, a company that runs expeditions. And on the expeditions, if you look at the expedition in the middle, and everything has a UML stereotype on it here, so it relates back to the, um, excuse me, to the, uh, to the M2 uh, level that was on the prior page. Um, you know, an expedition is an instance of an economic event, and then it has the actual attributes in a relation. This is a classic UML class diagram. It has the attributes, for instance, the expedition number, which serves as its primary key. So in this particular case, this company runs expeditions. They go to locations. The locations, um, those expeditions have different kinds of employees, like pilots, guides, and expedition workers, and they use different types of resources, like um, supply items, and aircraft, okay? Then on the yellow, on the other side, you can see there are actually company policies that say when you have this type of an expedition, for instance, an expedition to the top of a glacier, um, it has to use this type of an airplane. 
and it needs these three types of people, one guide, two pilots, and perhaps two expedition workers. So it actually has... Um, it has the policies there in yellow. Those are the abstract, connected things that go together. And then it has the actual transaction in green. And obviously, if you um, you know how to program the controls in, you can make sure that when things happen in green, they obey the policies in the yellow. Or that when they um, are actually infractions of the policies, they're noted if you want to keep track of the policies as they go along. So again, REA has two levels here. It has what actually occurred. That's the expedition components in green and then the policies, which are the things that are shown there in yellow. Okay? All right, Peter, if you can go on to the next one. Um, returning to our color theme again, um, we have the yellow and the green. And in the middle of these two, you can actually have the third component uh, of the ontology, which is those components that deal with promises to make economic events occur in the future. So this is the scheduled future, which you can see in slide number 20 here in the middle. We have um, color-coded as, as purple. Now, I know a real ontology is machine-readable. So... Um, the fact that all of these are in color doesn't really mean anything to a machine, but it does mean um, something to a person who's trying to understand exactly what goes on. Now, the intent is to stereotype these things exactly as given here, and uh, you can see with the UML class diagrams, we've stereotyped um, the things on there. So we have the machine analog of the colors in the actual stereotypes that are written at the top of each class diagram. So what I would like to do now after slide number 20 is explain what the, the scheduled future components are. We've already taken a look at the types and the things down the bottom. So, Peter, if you could slip to slide number 20, you'll see um, what we do here. And this is actually quite easy, um, but I must admit a lot of this work came from EBXML and then follow-on work with UNCFACT. And um, lo and behold, when I went into the accounting textbooks and accounting theory, I found out the people had already described these types of things already. So what I had to do was put that theory together with what people were trying to do in the standards. This shows you a commitment, and a commitment in REA is, very, is a very simple class. A commitment is a promise to make an execute, excuse me, a promise to execute an economic event sometime in the future. So a commitment could be something like a reservation in a hotel. I call up and say, I promise to come next Sunday. Please save me a room. Um, another commitment on the other side could be, if you save me the room, I promise to pay you. Okay? So you might have a promise to stay at the hotel, um, and in return for that, the people expect some kind of a promise to, um, to pay you. Now, you often don't have both sides of the commitment. For instance, a lot of hotels will let you get away with not showing up at least until 6 o'clock. But when you have both sides, and they're both required, you actually get away here to model what people ordinarily call contracts. Okay? And we did some um, work with the UBAC project in the United Nations on contracts. That's something like if you promise to have um, 1,000 tires at my automobile plant next Monday, I promise that I will pay you on Tuesday. And associated with the contract, you might have other types of payments back and forth, like um, which, what happens if your check bounces or what happens if the goods don't show up on time and I have uh, 100 workers sitting around idle because your promise wasn't fulfilled. So the contract actually has the payments and the ideas for what the object-oriented model is often called the happy path. 
So, for instance, the happy path for my uh, factory example was um, I get the goods there on time and you pay me on time. But the contracts also um, specify often the unhappy path, what happens in the case of a, uh, a delayed shipment or a bounce check or goods that don't um, fulfill the contract as given. Okay? For now, we're just going to stay on the happy path, so to speak, and just show you very simply um, when REA does the promises and how they're connected. Now, REA is very symmetrical, and you can see the green ones here at the bottom of slide number 21 um, are, is a symmetry with the purple ones at the top. In other words, duality is what happens in the real thing, and reciprocal is what happens in the promised realm, and they, they tend to look at it like each other, no surprise, okay? All right, Peter, then if you could move on to um, slide number 22 which shows you another component of REA about the commitments. When you have commitments, it is often the case, most often the case for the resource types, that the promises specify not a particular resource, although there are cases where that happens, um, but a resource type. So, for instance, when I make a reservation in a hotel, I'm not usually reserving room 222. I'm reserving a room with two double beds and a coffee maker or something else like that, or a hot tub, or something. The hotel might have um, seven or eight different resource types or rooms that are available, and three or four instances of each. So when you actually make a commitment, you often specify the resource type. And less often, you can specify the agent type. So you might specify, for instance, um, if you were going to um, get a DJ to come and do your wedding. I know this because my brother does this. Um, and you might get a promise that there would be a certain kind of a disc jockey who would be certainly qualified in some way, shape, or form to do it. And you would get a, any one of three instances that the agency has of that. You might also specify the event type. If the event types were as simple as wholesale and retail, you might specify that I'm going to um, have this thing that's going to occur in the future, this economic exchange, at retail or at wholesale prices. Um, there are other types of event types, but most commonly you do specify um, for a commitment the resource type. I promise to give you this type of resource, less commonly for the event types and the agent types. And then, um, as we mentioned before, the yellows actually sometimes are connected to each other with policies. And it often turns out to be the case, for instance, when you get an event type, like for my brother's um, uh, DJ business, when he does a wedding, that means that he promises to bring certain types of resources and certain types of people to the wedding. So all you have to actually do is specify the instance of a gig of, um, of wedding, and you automatically get the resource type and the agent type because they're all connected to each other. In some cases, that makes the specified relationships here um, a little bit superfluous. Now, that's at the, um, again, um, the, the, the promise level, and that's at the M2 level. Now, this next one is a little a bit mind-blowing, so could you flip over here? Um, no, it's not the next one. I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself. Number 23 shows the basic model that I've talked about so far. The green, again, is what has occurred, and it's color-coded here. Those are the resources, events, and agents, the duality, stock flow, and participation relationships. The yellow is what could be or should be. Those are the types and the connections between the greens and the types. They're called typifies. And the connections between the yellows, they're called policies. And then the purple is what's planned or scheduled, the commitments, the specify, the fulfill, and the reciprocals. There's also ones that go across transactions, across business processes. Um, so, for instance, if you have a, um, a sale order in your uh, revenue process, it's possible that sale order might be triggered over in the manufacturing process to a production order. So, for instance, when you get a, um, 
an order from a customer that says you should buy the uh, dependent demand or backward chaining, that sale order might then trigger a production order in the factory. And that production order would then, um, within the conversion process, trigger a materials requisition. And then that materials requisition would then trigger, say, purchase order as you sort of go down in determined demand. And a lot of the supply chain things work exactly like that. Um, the commitments flow backwards from the customer on back to the original source. The goods flow forwards from the original source out to the customer. And then very often the money flows backwards. But um, very much a just-in-time or a, um, a dependent demand system. And that's the kinds of things that certainly EBXML, uh, UMM, and ISO OpenEDI very much deal with um, is the concept of important triggers to commitments and how the commitments work out so you know everything is, is ordered and scheduled in order is a very strong component um, of this kind of an ontology. Okay? All right. Now, I have an example of that. My example is not actually an exchange example. This is sort of the mind-blowing slide here, the next one. Um, it's slide number 24. Um, but this just shows you how these three levels can actually be done in one business process. So this is one business process. Um, you can see we have the REs and A's in green. We have the policies governing those. And then in between, we have the actual um, scheduled transactions. Um, and for those of you who have done any work at all with manufacturing, you, rec you can see very quickly that you have things like the bill of materials or an operations list. In other words, to make one particular instance of our finished good type um, it says uh, to make one, and this is a medical equipment, so it says, for instance, to take uh, one um, uh, MRI machine or something else like that. It'll take um, one instance of this operation type that's going to use X number of minutes of each individual employee and X number of components of tools and X number of components of machines. Those are often called quantity PERS. And then when you actually schedule that you want to make five um, MRI machines, you would have a scheduled manufacturing operation that would take those quantity PERS and multiply them all times five. And then, so that would be the scheduled part in purple. And then when it actually occurred, you get the, um, the green ones down the bottom. And um, actually, this is a, a different way of viewing accounting, but accounting people have done a lot of this with accounts forever. That leads to variances like um, actual, planned, and the variances that sort of say you plan to use 101 of this component, and you actually used 103, so you have a negative variance. The idea is here that you can do all, actually all of the traditional accounting things that you do with accounts by keeping track of very well the natural kinds that you do um, on a sort of a, a normal basis. Okay, if you can switch over to slide number 25 now, Peter. Okay, uh, what I just showed you is what I consider to be the basic model. Actually, for, um, for OpenEDI, I had to add a lot of things on here. So you can see um, there are some stuff that's been renamed and added. And again, this takes the basic REA ontology and adds those components in um, that are particular to the stand that I'm working in. I'd like them to use my terms, but uh, you can't always do that. Down the bottom, you can see a particularly important thing in the idea of open EDI, which is a bilateral and a mediated transaction. This turns up in every supply chain um, process. Um, REA and the open EDI ontology considers mediated transactions to be an aggregation of binary transactions. That's a very important component of that um, 
one that we haven't actually totally developed as well as we should have, but this is the class diagram that shows you exactly what that is. It says a mediated transaction is one that incurs um, the buyer, the seller, and then some third party like a logistics uh, provider or a bank or something else like that. Okay, Peter, if you could switch over to slide number 26. Okay. So that shows you the basic model that we use in OpenEDI. I thought um, very quickly here I was going to show you the other components of the REA ontology that don't actually fit into either OpenEDI or into the UNC FACT work. Um, so the ones we've done answer the questions of who, what, when, over what time period. They don't really answer the question why. And um, in the REA ontology, that's, that's um, answered by appeal to what's um, called economic man or homo economicus. It very simply means that all the agents in this model in classic microeconomic fashion are utility maximizers, and they engage in exchanges or conversions so they can get to higher levels of utility. So sometimes when you see enterprise ontologies, they have things that are called goals. We have this goal, and we have that goal, and we have this goal. REA very simply always uses one goal. Everybody is interested in engaging in commerce to increase their utility. So the whole idea of what goals are is a very simple one based on that simplified assumption there of homo economicus. Okay? All right. And how do we build in our uh, the, the concept of why? In the REA ontology, that's built in with value chains. So if you build it in, um, flip over to slide number 27, please. You can see um, the green ones again here are the basic conversion and revenue process. For instance, we took a look at a revenue process that gives away cookies and gets cash. That was the Cookie Monster in Elmo. Um, upstream from that, we had a process where you give away labor and cookie ingredients and you get cookies. To a certain extent, we saw an example of that with a conversion process. But you can see both of those have the green components and they may also have the yellow and the purple components. That's what the definition is of a business process. So that's a classic hammer and champy, although I've altered it a little bit there. It takes one or more kinds of input and creates an output that is of greater value to the customer. Then when you put them together, you get what's called a value chain, which is a purposeful network of conversions and exchanges. And again, this isn't, um, this is, goes beyond open EDI. A value chain is a term that's um, very much connected with Michael Porter of the Harvard Business School, but it's an important part of REA because it always ties every single action or economic event or even business event that you're doing back to the question of why are you doing that. And again, the overall goal is to provide value to the customer. It's a value exchange mechanism. Okay? All right, Peter, if you can switch to slide um, number 28, please. So all the things you've seen so far have been classically developed in REA um, over a number of years, and I think we have them in published papers, and they're well thought of. This next one is a little bit um, underdeveloped, and it's the part that we're sort of working on right now that answers the question for a business process. You answer the question of who, what, when, over what time period, why, but when you start to answer the question how, then you get into workflow. And how is answered, in, at least in the ontology, the way it is now, by going through a series of small events that move a business process through to completion. Now, we have the mechanisms for this figured out, but I, I, you know, this, this is a little bit underexplored and under-researched and, for that matter, under-specified right now. This is all done with what's called a state machine, and I'll very quickly explain how the state machine works. But, again, um, in both of the standards, it's kind of a work in process. Okay, so if you can advance to slide number 29, please. 
The question of how here, referring back to the diagram that was done before, is when you take a business process, um, like the revenue process, and says, how do you actually make a sale work? What events do you do to do an, a, a, a sale? Well, you do the two economic events. You do the certain thing like um, the shipment and the payment that we saw. But often there's workflow associated that goes in between that. So, for instance, in one company, to make a revenue process occur, to make a sale occur, you'd have to do things, and you have to get down to the orange there, like you'd have to publish a catalog. Then you'd have to make a sales contact with a customer. Then you'd have to negotiate the customer order. Then you would ship the goods, and we saw that. That's an actual economic event. Then you would have to send an invoice, and then you would have to accept a payment. So as you can see in the box at the, at the left and bottom of slide number 29, workflow is a series of business events, and all those things in the, in the orange there would be business events, that progress a business process through its phases leading to eventual completion. So this is how workflow is handled in um, OpenEDI and in the RE anthology. Okay, Peter, then can you slide, uh, can you um, advance to slide number 30? Now, if, to understand how business processes work in OpenEDI, you need to understand part one of the standard, and it divides business processes into five stages, okay, or five phases. They're called planning, identification, negotiation, actualization, and post-actualization. I know there are a variety of other business processes, um, mechanisms, and ontologies that define these things and might define differently. This actually comes from two researchers in Canada who actually took a look at all of the business process literature they could find and tried to figure out its phases, and they came up with this sort of overall model. And to my knowledge now, I've been working with this thing for about three or four years, this one works, and it works really well. You could come up with other divisions, but I think this one generally works pretty well, okay? Um, you could see the planning and identification sort of involves things like how do the Cookie Monster and Elmo get to know each other um, through a catalog or through some kind of yellow pages. They would identify each other by calling up and saying, do you have some of these goods? Negotiation would be things like um, uh, you negotiate a contract saying, I want 10 chocolate chip cookies next Wednesday. I'll pay a dollar. And they say, well, we can give you 11, but it'll come on Thursday, and they're going to cost you a dollar five. So you can go back and forth specifying the terms of the contract. And then you have the actualization and the post-actualization. That's when the actual goods and the money get swapped there. If we could sl turn over to slide number 31, this just shows you, and this is the part of the standard, it's 159.441, what these stages are. And they actually correspond to that three color component that I sh showed you before. Again, um, the, uh, the policies are the yellow part. That's what happens in your planning and identification. The scheduling is the purple part, the negotiation, and the actualization, the post-actualization. Post-actualization we haven't really talked about very much. That's what happened when the deal goes bad. That's what happens, again, when the check bounces or the goods are stale or something else like that. In contrast to traditional accounting, you can see below the red line on slide number 31, that's been traditional accounting, the, uh, the part of the business process that deals with um, planning, identification, and negotiation is sort of an augmented accounting that deals with the other components as you look at it. All right, if we could please advance to the next slide, please. I just very simply have an example here. I actually took this example from um, UBL example that was done a number of years ago from Commerce One before they even called it UBL. Here's a typical transaction that would occur in open EDI collaboration space where you send messages back and forth where the messages at the top would be something like, 
the seller publishes a catalog. And again, you can see um, the yellow ones deal with um, the two people talking about the policies they have, the types of things they offer, the type of credit they want in return for those things. The purple says, um, how do we specify the commitments we're making to each other for certain types of events and certain types of resources. And then the green deals with the actual um, buying and selling of the goods and the transfer of the money as you can see it. Okay? All right, if we could switch over to slide number 32 here, I'm going to return to my Cookie and Elmo space because um, we're now going to take a look at how the UMM, which is the, um, uh, the United Nations Modeling Methodology, actually pictures although there's somewhat of a lyrical picture of it, um, what they call a collaboration space between a buyer and a seller. Okay? So, again, to use the same example, um, let's suppose Cookie Monster and Elmo didn't run into each other on slide number three or whatever it is, but let's suppose they're actually separated by quite a bit of time and distance, um, and they actually want to go through a collaboration. What the UMM says, and the Open EDI model actually specifies, is how do we keep track of the status of that collaboration as they send messages back and forth to each other as they try to complete this collaboration or this business deal or this business process. And the mechanism for tracking that progress, seeing where you are, what is the status of the collaboration at any point in time, is what we call a state machine. Okay, and um, I'm not going to specify an awful lot about the state machine, but it's relatively easy to see in a very simple example. And so on slide number um, 33, if you look in the um, uh, next corner, okay, I um, wasn't ready to advance yet, Peter. Sorry. Uh, there we go. Um, and so on slide number 33, if you look in the corner about where 10 o'clock would be on a clock, you can see a red arrow pointing to a resource type here. And a resource type, any kind of a business object, and that's what the, the UML class has become, has what's called a life cycle of states that it goes through. And those states are changed by the occurrences of business events or um, business transactions, um, as they're sometimes called in the UMM, or um, SOA transactions, as they're called in OpenEDI. They're nothing more than a request response that goes across the wire that changes the status of the deal between the two people, and you keep track of the changes by keeping track and changes of um, the various business objects. So, for instance, if you look at economic resource type here, I'm going to show you how that changes how that gets changed by business events from two different perspectives on the next slide. Now, if we could advance to slide number 34. Okay. We're starting to talk here about how this work then fits in with the, um, with the UN work on the UMM. Okay. Very much part of the UN CFACT work. This is from a uh, slide presentation that was actually done in Washington by Christian Weimer and Philip Legal. They're both from the, um, uh, the university, uh, the Technical University of Vienna. They're the UMM team. Um, most of them are actually doctoral students in Christian's group there that are building this um, for UNC fact. Okay, so the UMM is uh, very simply described here as a, as a graphical business process modeling for B2B commerce. It concentrates on business semantics, exactly the types of things we've been looking on, and um, it provides a methodology for designing how the software um, evolves going from um, the requirements to the actual process design. And, again, it's very much UML dependent. Okay? If we could advance the next slide, slide number 35, please. 
Okay? This is, um, again, from the same presentation by Christian Wehmer and Philip Legal. It just shows you the components of the UMM. Um, I have the green arrow pointing here at the business requirements view because that, that's the components that actually use these business entities or these business objects, the R, E's, and A's that we've mentioned before. Okay? Um, they have different views if you take a look at the UMM document. And I'm just going to show you the views that actually use the, um, the REA components. So if we can flip over to slide number 36, please. This, again, is from the same presentation um, on the, uh, the accounting interoperability workshop that NSF sponsored that uh, Christian and Philip did here. It just shows you how this process takes place. Now, I'm going to sort of skip over this slide a little bit, 36, because I've actually got a simple, simple example on the next two slides. This is taken from um, the UMM uh, a foundation module document that is put out in, uh, by the United Nations for how the UMM is specified and how it works. It's now in version 2.0. Um, they're supporting um, version 1.0 is actually quite a, uh, had quite a bit of implementation associated with it. They've now gone to a second version um, that shows you how these things work. But I'm going to show you how it's done in OpenEDI, okay, on the next couple of slides. Remember, if you could, back to the Cookie Monster and Elmo example, there was that cloud in the sky it represented a collaboration, and you wanted to keep track of the status of that collaboration. And there are two UML artifacts that do that um, on slide number 37, if you could advance. One of those artifacts is called a state machine, okay? And remember, we actually had that red arrow pointing to the economic resource type. This shows you one of the possible state machines for the economic resource type um, business object. It says that an economic resource type starts off in state null, if you look in the, the northwest corner here, okay, with a little black dot, and it says the occurrence of a business event called published catalog takes the economic resource type from state null into state candidate. So when a published catalog event occurs, a message goes across the wire, it changes this resource into state candidate. Then later on, when the send availability and price request, another message or another business event occurs, it takes the economic resource type from state candidate into state planned. And then later on, um, when the return availability and price result comes in, it takes it from planned into identified. So in the UMM, this is actually called the business entity view, and it consists of state machines for all of the things that we've identified in the yellow, in the green, and actually in the purple. Okay? Now, there's another way of looking at this um, from a UML uh, activity diagram here, and I'm going to show you that on the next slide, on slide number 38. Okay, this is the same view we just saw where you have a business event occurring, okay, and in shared collaboration space on, on this slide here, now number 38, it's important to note that there's a column for the buyer, there's a column for the seller, and there's a space in between. That space in between is that cloud that we showed with Elmo and Cookie Monster here. That's that shared collaboration where both of us are able to see exactly where we are in the deal, in the process, in the, the progress through the deal is always managed by changing the states of the individual business objects. So again here, if you look at it in the top right, um, the occurrence of a business event called published catalog changes in collaboration space in the cloud. Um, the the uh, space called economic resource type, in, it moves it to state candidate. Now, we just saw that, for instance, on the, um, the state machine diagram. It also takes the planning phase. That's one of the five phases of the business process, and it moves it from null into state waiting start. 
And then on the buyer side, they generate their, their resource needs and send the catalog request. And again, that is actually going to be sent across the wire and change the collaboration space in between. Now, this is right out of the, um, the Open EDI Part 4, the uh, specifies the ontology here. Um, okay. Oops. Uh, is the piano from where Bill is? Or no. Okay. It's gone away. It's gone away. There's no problem here. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Um, so let's advance to the next slide. I just wanted to sort of uh, reiterate. I probably should have put a summary slide here. It sort of says, again, what we're actually explaining with this ontology is a series of questions about who, what, when, where, what time, why, and how, okay? And when you answer all of those questions, they produce a very elaborate class diagram that shows you all the components, and each of those components is a, is a specific part of the ontology. Now, I did want to mention here, um, this is a very important part of the Open EDI standard, and I must admit there's a little bit of a shock for me when I first ran into it in uh, around 2001, um, is that um, collaboration space ontologies are ontologies for supply chains or open collaboration actually are very different than the way we ordinarily teach um, information systems in a normal, say, business school class. And this is a view um, that is actually viewed to the... Uh, due to the Japanese delegates um, to 159, what those two views are and the importance of understanding how different they are. If you look at this diagram here, now I'm on slide number 39, and if you look at the middle, that's the value chain, the whole company, so to speak, although it's only three business processes, for our entrepreneur. So he has a business process where he acquires goods, he has a business process where he converts goods, and he has a business process where he sells the goods. Now, on the right-hand side, um, down the bottom, we have a, um, a value chain for the cookie monster. Let's suppose cookie monster doesn't eat his cookies. Let's suppose he, he uses them to do something else, like make birthday cakes or something. He would acquire cookies. He would use them in a manufacturing process, and then he would sell whatever the new thing was. If you take a look at that, uh, the blue arrow that goes um, from the last business process for Elmo to the first business process for Cookie Monster, okay, that's the thing we saw with the first set of pictures. The goods were going one way and the money was going the other way, okay? Now, if you took a look at that business process from the perspective of Elmo, you would call the transfer of the goods a sale and the receipt of the money a cash receipt, if you take a look at it from Cookie Monster's perspective, you would call the transfer of goods a purchase, and you would call the uh, payment a cash disbursement. So you can see the terms change depending upon whose company you're sitting inside. And the fact that they change is done there in red. It's the trading partner view of the enterprise events, okay? And it changes. What the, um, the Open EDI ontology has to do is make sure those things don't change. So it's actually done from the view, sometimes called by people like Bob Haugen, the helicopter view up top. It's the independent view of the enter enterprise events where um, actually the fact that Elmo sold the cookies to Cookie Monster looks an awful lot like him buying the, uh, the cookie components from Kermit, who's my component supplier, on the other side. Both of them are goods going one way and money going the other. Okay? So it's important there that you understand that OpenEDI and such processes have this independent view. So a lot of the ordinary terms like sale, cash receipt, inflow, outflow can actually be used in actually doing the components of the ontology. That was a little bit of a, 
uh, a mapping problem when we first started doing this, and I don't think we've totally showed you all the right kinds of mappings. I think, for instance, the conversion process I showed you some slides back was actually done from the red or from the internal perspective. But eventually we're going to get the ontology so that everything is defined from the black and that the red things are actually derived from that. Okay. All right, then now, I sort of explained now the, all the components of the ARI, and um, I'm going to sort of end the slide with about 10 minutes of questions about where this is all headed, and this is especially a place where I'd like to have um, people, if they have any ideas about what this ontology looks like. Um, and or where it should go, what, what kind of steps we need to go. I've already had a number of ontologists tell me um, that this isn't really an ontology. It's not formal enough. So I know that, but hearing it from people, again, probably wouldn't hurt. Okay? So um, in, 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 in answering the question, um, where are we headed, we need to move to slide number 40. Um, I know it looks like all of this is a little bit underspecified, and it probably strikes a lot of people that um, this is one of these crazy college professors where everything is still kind of not all figured out. And in both cases, you'd actually um, be uh, uh, sensing the truth. Um, I, uh, the REA ontology has been underdeveloped for a number of years. I'm a college professor. Um, so I have a number of places where I'd like to, to develop this. Some is in the open accounting literature. I think eventually the account, all ontologies, when they specify the terms, must publish those terms and get those definitions agreed upon in the open literature of the field they're in. In other words, um, you can't be a business person who comes in and just says, this is the components of business unless you get some kind of agreement from uh, the accounting community that those terms are, in fact, reflecting the way they want the terms to use. Um, you also need to get these things established in the standards community, and you also need to get them established in a technologically um, competent way. So... Um, it turns out that these are two of my favorite quotes about the way I work. Um, if this all strikes you as a little bit um, uh, unbalanced or disorganized right now, um, that's true of me, and I often appeal to the Nitschke quote there that says, um, if you've got everything figured out ahead of time, you're probably not doing a brand-new, innovative type of work. And... Um, and I suspect many of you have thought, although I haven't heard anybody complain yet, but that's because you're all on mute, um, that this doesn't look like real accounting. In other words, it looks like a different view of accounting, and I'm not sure if this graphs back to the type of accounting that I'm actually used to. Um, and in fact, it is a, a slightly different way of thinking about accounting, but it's an accounting that is more, it's an accounting model that's more made for the types of um, uh components that we would actually use in an ontology. So um, to understand where REA is right now, we have to sort of understand where it is. And so, Peter, if you could switch over to slide number 41. This is an ontological explanation of where REA is right now that's actually from the Open EDI standard, because one of the things I did when the first group would come in and said, how do we know this idea is actually have some uptake? How do we know that four years from now you won't just say this was all some kind of a mistake um, that we should have based our, um, our Open EDI ontology on something else. So this is a series of questions that um, Professor Gomez Perez, who's a, um, a researcher from Spain, said, um, if you're thinking about an ontology, it should be able to answer these questions in the affirmative. And those is, does it express the consensus knowledge of a community? Can it be used to solve a variety of problems? And in the, um, the right-hand column there on slide number 41, you have exactly my answers to those types of questions. So this is sort of where REA was 
about four or five years ago, or in some cases a weak rationalization from Bill McCarthy about why I think it was an adequate basis on which to base the collaboration ontology. Now, on slide number 42, if we could advance, there's a more recent paper, and this is actually good because it was done by somebody totally different from my group, okay? This is a group that's at the University of Ghent in Belgium. They sort of took a look at REA and its use, and they wrote a paper called Positioning and Formalizing the REA Ontology, and they actually took a look at it and how it's used um, in four different ways. They used it as, as, a, as an education ontology, as an ontology for model-driven design, as a supply chain ontology, and as a knowledge representation mechanism. And you can see there, um, in all four cases, what they do in the paper is sort of give the references for how it's used in those places, and then they make some kind of an assessment of whether it's doing a good job, a bad job. I didn't get any bads, but I got some sort of mediocres, or whether it's doing a very, very good job. And you can see, um, quite not surprisingly, because I'm a college professor, the place where REA is actually used the most is in accounting education. Actually, um, like I said, the five or six leading accounting systems textbook, some of them are devoted entirely to, the, to, the, to teaching it this way. Some of them just have a couple of chapters and sort of hang on to the old debit credit system as a, as, a, as a way of thinking about accounting systems. But it's very advanced in education, less advanced in some of the other ones. And if you looked at this paper, it then sort of gives you um, questions and directions for it to sort of head off. It. So it's a good sort of um, present assessment of where we're headed. So we could go on to the next slide, please, number 43. In trying to figure out where any particular ontology is right now, this is something that almost any um, uh, person who is involved with um, designing an ontology has to answer, and that is, where is it on the interoperability scale that Leo Oberst, who's a very prominent member of the ontology community, um, Leo has sort of um, characterized ontologies from the bottom left um, as weak semantics all to the top right in terms of strong semantics. And obviously the idea is here, if you want to make your ontology better, you need to move up and to the right as you go along. Okay? And so um, this is my own personal view. I slabbed REA there and sort of overhanging the structural interoperability and the semantic interoperability. But there's no doubt that the message I've been getting from critiques of the ontology and from people more interested in formal methods is Bill you and your team and everybody else who uses this one need to advance from frame-based ideas and specifications like UML class diagrams up to logic-based. And in fact, that's where we're sort of headed um, in the future as we try to develop the ontology. Although I must admit the frame-based ontologies um, really do work well, especially when you're specifying things like the UMM that uses business objects and um, life cycles for business objects, okay? So um, the next slide, number 44, um, comes from that same paper from the three authors from um, Belgium. And you can see um, when they, at the end of the paper they sort of said, yeah, we think it's a pretty good um, set of ideas. Um, but at the top they say we conclude that it could be committed, can be considered 
a semantically rich ontology that needs to be further formalized. There's the same message. Um, and then they sort of take a left-handed compliment to the work that's been done so far, saying that the bulk of researchers so far have been trying to solve accounting problems, which is exactly where um, I actually think most of the work needs to be done. And it says at some point, some groups, and their group is actually taking a run at this, needs to step back away from the domain problems and start talking about improving um, the precision, the explicit semantics, and the formality of the model, okay? Um, so, again, the same message that um, was echoed on the prior pages, okay? So, um, so here on slide number 45, we've talked about um, where the ontology is now and where it's headed, okay, um, in June of 2006, okay? Um, here is my to-do list, and if you people are wondering where this body of work is headed and where we're headed. Um, there's a basic ontology theory paper that's actually been sitting around for four or five years that keeps on getting revised um, as the standards people show me different things that actually need to go into a business process. And that actually has to, and that's priority number one for me, that has to be um, set set down, specified, and then um, submitted to the refereed accounting literature. This goes back to a, um, a theme that I had before, is that um, the components of an ontology need to be agreed upon. And in a domain ontology, I think there's no better place for this than the refereed literature of the domain field. And that means um, high-class journals, long publication times, a lot of referees fighting you, trying to take things out and put things in. Um, <laughs> it's a long, arduous process that many of the people on the on the, um, the call who are professors understand. But it's not as long and as arduous as trying to get it by an international standards group, for instance, where all of a sudden you found out a group in Sweden who you've never met doesn't like your work because of X, and you have the uh, the prospect of either taking out the offending part of the component or having them vote no and running the chance that the standard never gets by any kind of an approval process. So both peer review and standard setting are, are kind of the same kinds of ideas where you're getting things from all over the place and you need to respond to them. Um, for now, we have a standards project with REA with two. ISO is done right now. It's a published standard that was accepted internationally in November of last year. And you go on the um, ISO website and get a copy of it. It does cost money, but if you're using it in the standard setting process, I'm allowed to give you a copy. And actually, at the last standard, the ISO um, SC32 meeting last week, which was in Sydney, Australia, we all adopted a, uh, an intellectual property um, resolution that said people who are using ISO work for standards process should be able to get copies free from the ISO website. So that's not true right now, but I expect it to be true, say, within uh, before the end of June um, in that process. So um, the ISO standard is done now, and now I'm turning my attention back over to the UNCFAC standard, which quite I hate to admit, has been sort of neglected for the last year as I've been working with other things in the ISO. Um, the formalization initiative that I talked about with REA is under, being undertaken by a number of people, um, most especially that group in Ghent and, um, and under the, uh, the authors who are working on the paper, including myself and some of my co-authors, are trying to move this uh, work up the interoperability scale, up the, uh, the Ober scale into more of a logic-based formalism. 
Okay. Uh, there's no doubt that the workflow components that I described at the end are underspecified and under-researched. I think we've got the mechanics figured out correctly, but we've got to actually make sure that it works and be more exhaustive in the enumeration of the components. And then for now, my research group at least, and um, probably for that matter, all research groups associated with accounting with REA have decided to put the accounting issues on the back burner. That's sort of an artifact of the way American accounting academics work. The number of professors of accounting who actually understand computer science could be counted on two hands. Um, it's a sadly, sadly underdeveloped part of um, accounting ac academics. And uh, if you do this kind of work, if you're a computer scientist, you clearly live on the lunatic fringe of accounting academic respectability. Um, so for now, we just don't have the, the critical mass of people who could take REA who understand data modeling. I suspect to some of you this looked pretty simple, um, and I, I certainly think REA is pretty simple. But to the average accounting professor, the, um, the, the tour that I just took you through in the last hour is something like a two- or three-course sequence before they really understand it. Um, as one of the prime developers of the model, it's always been counterintuitive to me how easy it looks and how hard it is for a person involved with normal accounting to make the mental adjustments to start thinking this way. So, and then again, there are some other issues that we could talk about later on. On slide number 46, which is the next one, I'm going to sort of talk about my, my big issue right now, which is taking me and my group, tick-based modelers. And for those of you who have been in the AI or the modeling community, um, any length of time you've heard these simple terms of scruffy and neat. Well, I'm clearly a scruffy modeler, as it turns out right now, and my intent is to take the group and the people around me and make us logic-based, uh, come up with more logic-based formulas for REA, or to take us from REA scruffy to REA neat. Um, I must admit I love frame-based modeling. I'm an old um, REA, uh, excuse me, entity relationship modeler, and UML class diagrams are things that I feel very, very familiar with, especially in implementing them directly into relational databases. I think it's a wonderful way to think about the whole process of the data that a company yours is storing it. And in the bullets here, um, I give you sort of the, the frame-based uh, gospel. The world very simply consists of classes, that are particulars of universals, occurrence and continuance, concrete and abstract. Those are um, ontology terms that basically mean all of those are candidates for classes. And associations between those objects of the form particular universal, particular, particular, universal, universal. Um, and data modeling, going all the way back to John and Diane Smith, we had names for these. We called them classification abstraction, aggregation abstraction, and generalization abstraction. So that's where we are now. That's where the REA Scruffy community resides. But we do need to, um, as the... Um, uh, the blue at the bottom says, uh, progress toward formal logic that enhances the frame semantics with things like completeness and decidability, and that's certainly where we're headed. Okay, if we could turn over to slide number 47. I'm going to end here by sort of talking you uh, through a, um, uh, a workshop we just had where some of these issues were actually involved, and not only for REA but for other standards as well. Um, and that was the Financial Interoperability Summit that was done on uh, May 12th and 13th in Arlington. Um, it was very generously founded, uh, funded by the National Science Foundation. For that, I thank the program director, Frank Olkin.
And what we did there was we looked at formal issues associated with accounting and financial interoperability at both the reporting level and the transaction level. Now, REA is definitely a transaction level ontology. There's other um, standards work that's going on at the reporting level, most notably, and we had a number of people from that camp there, the XBRL um, standard that uh, Chairman Cox just mandated for SEC use on a two- to three-year horizon um, two weeks ago. So we actually had members from the XBRL community there, both the XBRL FR, which is the financial reporting, and the XBRL Global Ledger, which is XBRL GL. And we actually explored opportunities for how do these standards work together or are they competing? Um, in what spaces are they competing? Um, XBRL, and I'm a known um, non-supporter of all the things that XBRL does, so um, it's too bad we don't have an XBRL supporter, or maybe we do on the line, who can give you a contra uh, view. But XBRL is strictly a syntactic standard. It resides way down at the bottom end of the overst interoperability scale. And what we talked about in Washington was ways to move XBRL up, in other words, to give it more frame-based or logic-based um, alternatives. Um, I must admit the XBRL community... Um, wasn't enthusiastic about that, but that's because they're not professors. They're, they're practitioners. They're interested in getting a standard out now that works right now. Okay? So um, if you're interested in that, any of that work, you can take a look at the wiki, and if you click on that um, uh, thing that's given there, um, it'll take you to the workshop, and you can see the individual papers that were given and the individual presentations and all that. Okay? All right. Um, on the next slide, I actually talked about the theme of the workshop, but I can see that I'm um, just about running out of time here, so I'm going to skip over, um, for now, slide number 48, and then um, uh, head off for the questions, which is um, slide number 49, okay? I must tell you, the REA community... Um, goes under the name of semantic modeling of accounting phenomena. We have a group that actually has been meeting for 10 or 12 years exploring a lot of the issues that we mentioned right here. When we first met, we met on February 2nd, which many of you know is Groundhog Day. So the groundhog has been sort of the uh, become the symbol of our group. And this is actually a groundhog. She lives here on the Michigan State campus. Um, somebody took a picture of her a couple of years ago. So um, she is the one that's going to wrap it up by asking um, if there are any questions. And I'm done, Peter. Oh, thank you very much, Bill. Uh, that's really comprehensive uh, rendition of uh, what we should be expecting any uh, serious thinker into going over uh, before committing things to a standard. And so much more, I mean, to an ontology. So uh, on that note, let's go check uh, on questions uh, for people who would like to make a remark, you could either, if you're on the chat session, then please press the hand sign now, uh, that will queue you up, and if you're on just on the call uh, please press 1-1 one, one on your keypad uh, so that we would know that uh, you would like to be queued up for Q&A and uh, or make a remark. So oh, my goodness. These are, these are great questions. Do I take them one at a time, or do we people to pose them? Uh, let's, uh, the, most of the, pe uh, the people who have uh, typed out questions already have their hands up, so let's maybe 
since not not everyone uh, on the chat session, uh, so so they should repeat the questions. Uh, okay, uh, top of the list uh, is Ravi Sharma. So Ravi, if you would just unmute and go ahead. Test your voice first. Uh, we can't see yet. Ravi Sharma. Uh, are you there? His first question about where accounting really originated. Uh, was it Venice or was someplace else? Is uh, quite interesting. So. Oh, Ravi? yes. Oh, that, yes. That, that, that was thought. Yes, Ravi? Okay. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, Peter, oh. I lost my phone for a while. Oh, all right. Okay. Uh, you, 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 your turn to, uh, uh, to make a remark or uh, uh, to uh, maybe ask. Since you have 14 different questions, could we limit you to like the first, the, the, the top two questions and then we give the chance to others uh, and then we, we might come back if we have uh, time for more. So, I, I will do two things, Peter. One is I'll leave these questions on your chat session, and I will also email these questions to Professor McCarthy to take mm -hmm. them offline. But the main themes are uh, revolved around two things. One is the questions that Professor uh, McCarthy asked. Uh, where do we see this going? And you challenged us by asking one question, what we do if people want to stick to their own namespaces, but they want you to um, adopt it as a you know, global standard. So my answer or a thought in the direction is that ontology comes to help you in that case. How ontology helps you is by concept mapping. If you map the patterns, like architectural patterns or implementation patterns, if you implement the concepts, if you document the concepts among various entities that are using different namespaces and map them in a concept-sharing space like John Sowas or what you yourself alluded in your talk, then we have a hope of role-based or enterprise-based namespace mapping. And that is the answer to rather than convert everybody to one side, just let them live in their own worlds, but do the matching of, I call this A and you call this B, but they are the same entity. Thank you, sir. Okay, that's a good idea. Second, I hadn't really thought about or explored that. Yeah. Second, so, and it is probably we've woven in various threads in my 15 questions. Second, okay. uh, second aspect is that what you do in terms of business process modeling does cover choreography, but uh, uh, it also uh, needs to do um, orchestration and uh, also keep track of crossing boundary enterprises among various enterprises so, um, so that you have documentation of internal and external um, steps in workflow. And uh, sequel to that is that similar to your robust work in financial management, if you are able to adopt it to supply chain, banking processes, to insurance processes, and so on, uh, that would be a great extension 
and I hope UN supports you in, in that vertical domain. Thank you, Professor. It was a great, great talk. Okay. Thank you. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to really um, try to try to maybe probe you a little bit more offline or with some emails about the um, the uh, choreography because I uh, I think the UML activity uh, graphs do a fairly good job of saying what's inside, what's outside, and uh, what actually happens in the collaboration space. But, uh, but as I I've mentioned in the talk, that part. The whole idea with the um, the shared state machine is clearly the most underdeveloped part of um, of all of this work. So I might be um, sending some questions your way. Most welcome, sir. Anytime. Okay. Uh, next in line uh, would be Todd, uh, but Todd says he cannot be talking. I assume. Uh, okay. That that it. it Todd, one more chance. I mean, can uh, uh, can you talk, or do you want me to read your question? So uh, he suggested I read the top question: uh, is is describing the when part of the model? Uh, oh, in describing the when part of the model, could this have been derived as ontological dependence of domain representation? Ooh. I'm not exactly sure of the meaning of that. Um, I wish Todd were able to amplify the question there. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm baffled. Um, I don't know what the term ontological dependence means. Right. Let, let's suggest that maybe Todd take this up on the ontologue forum, like even okay. Ravi. Unless, I mean, there are things that you want to do offline with uh, with Phil. I mean, I guess these are things that, that are of common interest to the community, and I highly encourage people to take them up uh, at the ontologue forum. Okay. The, uh, okay. Todd also went on to say common logic may be the best mechanism for formalizing this domain and yes, he that's said we assume there won't, uh, won't be a general agreement on the meaning of all terms and provide mediation capabilities. He's just echoing Ravi on that one. Okay. Right. Yep. All right. Well, thank you, okay. Todd. All right. Next in line would be Michelle. Uh, Michelle, go ahead. Okay. Hello? Yes. Hello. Right. Go ahead. All right. Um, I'm using Skype, so I wanted to head up my volume here. Um, what I wanted to ask about was back on commitments. Uh, do you okay. have an aspect for dealing with uh, probability, like the probability of an event occurrence uh, being a part of the definition of the commitment, and then more on the side of resources, the probability of a resource availability at the time that the commitment would be called for realization. Can that be included in this model? Well, I, I see no reason why it couldn't be uh, sort of included in a very ad hoc way by being an attribute of the commitment. Um, I must admit we haven't explored that. Formally, I uh, how can yeah. you uh, where, where I'm going with this is, say you have a collection of resources that might be available at the time that a commitment is needed to be handled, mm -hmm. uh, 
And so given that set of resources, you've, you've got those uh, perhaps in a registry or something, uh, you want to be able to then provide a service. Now, I can see that we could just make that another commitment, you know, put a service provider in between that links you with the resource when you want your commitment handled. But I w- was thinking that there are places and times where you really don't want that intermediary. So could it be formally brought into the model itself? Well, uh, it certainly is not in there now. Like I said, it might be put in there as an ad hoc, um, like an attribute. And um, sort of the macro-level commitment that you had talked about, we hadn't had that as part of the model yet. Um, One of the unexplored uh, parts of this model is how do you aggregate two or three business processes together and then um, treat that aggregate thing as just one business process, which I think sort of gets back to the same idea of what you're mentioning, Um, a commitment that sort of looks at three or four and does some kind of a um, an aggregation of if you took all of them together, what is the probability of being able to do this in any X number of ways? But I, we haven't done any work with that yet. Um, certainly aggregates, um, business processes that deal with aggregates of other business processes is a very, very, very underdeveloped part of the model. It was in that list I had down the bottom about um, macro-level aggregation and macro-level duality. Um, it's mm-hmm. something that uh, those ten people who are qualified to look at these work just haven't had the chance to get around and, and, and do just yet. So. Um, any ideas? Uh, it's a good idea. I'm glad this is all being recorded because I'll be able to go back and sort of say, hmm, let me think about um, how we can do that. But as of right now, certainly no consideration of that type is in the model. Well, aggregation is exactly the reason why I was asking the question. Uh, the thoughts that, that I've had thus far uh, include that you have these various resources that uh, might be available or that they have attributes that uh, you would consider taking. Uh, and right now we, what we do is we kind of we, we model multiple commitments and then decide which one to call in on. Well, reasoning over the commitment is um, one step off and actually makes the decisions for it a little bit harder. Um, because it's, it's become a little bit too high level uh, for the, the – they need some of the nuts and bolts that come from the actual information about the resource. Uh, and so the, having that intermediary is, is about the only way we've come up with uh, to do that, and, and so that in and of itself is an aggregation. Okay. Well, let me think about that. But your commitments would be optional in that sense? You may decide when to call them in? That's well, the, the commitment is essentially a yeah. You you have committed that. Uh, well, for example, if you've got uh, multiple suppliers, and uh, for we, we need to fuel our uh, we need energy. We need to be able to fuel our building and our process control, and okay. we can do that by these three or four different energy suppliers. Okay. And so we we have commitments that are standing commitments that say we are in relationship with this energy provider. But then there are the ones where you actually want to call in the commitment, provide me with energy. I know your current price for that energy is this. 
Uh, and so to be able to go through real time and and activate the the different commitments based on you know, different the, the the different functions um, of 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 the energy sources themselves uh, come into consideration. That's one of the examples. That's a good example. But what's in it for them? Is there some kind of a long-standing contract where there's a base payment? Yeah, the lo- well, do- which, which them? Uh, they're, they're, in the case of the energy, they're, there's what's in it for the company who's who's buying energy from four sources is that they're getting uh, the cheapest oh. cheapest at the at the time that they need the service. Oh, what's I certainly understand that part, but why would right. they provide a commitment to you? without some kind of reciprocation? Well, the reciprocation is that they, they pay for the energy uh, and that they know that because it's, it's no longer a, uh, a marketplace where you, can, you have to have a sole source provider, okay. um, then if they want to be able to provide you energy at all, they're going to have to accept that you're not going to always be taking energy from them. Interesting, as a one-sided deal, then. Mm. Yeah, but but if they don't have the contract with you, then they never then they never get any commitment. They never get the market to start off with. Okay. Yep. Right. So if if you aren't a provider, then you'll never be used. Right. Okay. Yeah, that that actually goes back to this idea of aggregate level things because there's some reason there's a business expense that they um, they write off there. Um, that the um, the uh, uh, the expense of being ready to provide you on a moment's notice is um, is part of the cost of doing business um, for them. It's part of the well, yeah. cost of doing business. Okay, yeah. Right. And and that is usually a separate commitment that's already uh, the the dual. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, the um, reciprocal uh, that you you pay a base fee to okay. have this energy provider. So they are okay. collecting at least that much, and that's to cover their overhead. May, may I suggest that uh, Next. maybe <laughs> you continue this discussion? Okay, uh, okay, sorry about that. I mean, we, no, oh, no, absolutely. No, no, I mean, it's, it's exciting. Uh, we should wrap up in about a minute. So I still have, like, Mike, Mike uh, Bennett and uh, uh, Mike Bennett, uh, myself, and Ravi. I guess, Ravi, you have to do uh, – do your further uh, uh, remarks over the, uh, the forum. Uh, I will let Mike go first, and then I'll just conclude with one line, and then we can wrap this up sort of in time. So, Mike, go ahead. Hi, thanks, Peter. Can you hear me all right? Yes, I certainly can. Oh, good, good. I wasn't sure if there was some probably my phone earlier. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely brilliant talk. Um, so more of a comment, but an introduction. I'm, I'm being tasked to create a, a financial securities ontology, and I'm, I'm using OWL, but to create a, a framework from which I can draw all the components that make up, you know, debts and equities and so on. I, I, I needed to create a, like a whole top-level framework, and I've been meaning to look at UMM for a long time, and I think I shall try and replace a lot of my framework with that. Um, but I've been using uh, John Sower's, you know, firstness, secondness, and thirdness um, at the top of the ontology, which makes it very different from most of the public ontologies that are out there. Uh, most of the things in my space are at about the level of sophistication of XBRL at the moment, so I'm kind of pushing the envelope there while being very much out of my depth in here, if you like. Um, so um, 
I guess really what I was what I was um, just just suggesting, apart from apart from just outlining that, was uh, when you're talking about economic agent versus person versus partner between Open EDI and UMN and so on. Wouldn't those be distinguished as first order, second order, and third order things? I mean, that's how I've got them in my model. Um, and I'm not sure I have a good answer for it. Certainly not a quick answer. Um, Hito Hertz and I did uh, map uh, the components as they existed in 2002 onto John's um, uh, 12 categories. And we had uh-huh. no trouble at all with first and second. With third, yeah. we started reaching a little bit. Um, and yeah, I, I must admit, I was third, happy. I use it for context and stuff more than anything. Um, right, things like a right. transaction is a kind of context, yeah. but an agent is clearly a second-order thing, and a person or, or legal entity of any sort is clearly a first-order thing. Well, maybe I'll take a look at that. Thank you for the suggestion. I, I, you know, like I said, the um, the third order was the one we had we clearly had the most problems with, and now it's five years <laughs> yeah. later in terms of understanding exactly what the things are. So maybe I'll uh, yeah. I'll dig John's book well, out again and read chapter two. Sure. Well, I've got a hugely untidy model full of this stuff, which you're welcome to look at. It's not very viewable um, at the moment, but, um, you know, all sort of it, using a UML tool, but using uh, OWL stereotypes, but then also creating sort of archetypes on top of that. Um, okay. If anybody's interested, it's probably a bit unreadable, but um, let me know. If Put me on the that. distribution list when it gets cleaned up. Okay. Please. Cool. Thanks. Okay, my turn. Uh, Peter Yim here. Uh, I I have maybe one quick question, which I don't expect a full answer because it will, it will be a long one, and then one uh, remark for 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 the session. Uh, the question is, I mean, in your previous talk, Bill, you talked about uh, extending from the sumo ontology, and of course, uh, like uh, <laughs> people like Todd. Uh, in, in the chat session has suggested common logic would be the best uh, uh, tool or the language to to work off. Uh, so could could you tell us uh, what had become of that sort of uh, work from extending from Sumo or any yeah. sort of uh, any other standard up ontology? And uh, besides, I saw on your. Uh, Earlier, I mean, in slide 46, you were talking about decidability. I mean, uh, was was it there because you believe that is important, or you're questioning whether uh, going at that level of uh, logic starts bringing the question of decidability into into issue into question? So, you know, I guess the answer to that question is, Peter, is once we. Um we started that work um, uh, a number of years ago. We never finished it. Um, we knew uh, that moving the whole body of work up more toward a logic-based formalism and, and certainly integration with Adam's um, sumo and then some of the domain ontologies on sumo. He has a financial one. I forgot the name of it. Um, was where we wanted to head, but we just didn't um, – uh, follow through and have the time to do that right now. Now we've got some of the other work done. So, for instance, the uh, the, the Open EDI standard is done. The UMM work has progressed a little bit more. It's clear that uh, that's the direction we need to go. And as a matter of fact, at the Washington workshop, we had a group that took uh, his uh, financial uh, ontology and then tried to map it to REA concepts. So we sort of started down that road. Certainly logic is where we're headed, and if we are headed that way, using the accumulated wisdom of atoms, uh, not only the upper domain ontology, but some of the domain ontologies underneath that that he has on his website is a very good way to sort of um, 
uh, try to start doing that mapping. And so it's certainly on the list. We're going to head there. That's absolutely fantastic. And, and I would do, uh, I would at this point, I mean, uh, try to uh, wrap up the session. I, I think Bill's work represents what Ontolog is all about. I mean, if, if we go to the Ontolog homepage, it says uh, we are an open international virtual community de de devoted to advancing the field by advocating its adoption into mainstream and into international standards. And that's exactly what uh, Bill has been doing this great work in. And among our charter, there is a line that says we need to identify ontological engineering approaches that might be applied to the broader domain of e-business standard, standardization effort. And on those two counts, uh, I, I the, take my hat off to uh, this great work that Bill is doing, and I highly encourage that we commit more of the uh, forum uh, space in, namely in the mailing list or in uh, discussion and uh, talk sessions to that end. So on that, I mean, I thank Bill McCarthy one more time for this really brilliant talk. And for okay, well, thank you for everybody. And um, all those questions, um, I'm going to probably look at them right now and try to figure out at least some of them. But I would really encourage people by email to send me so we can start some kind of a dialogue going back and forth and perhaps uh, to the extent we think they're more generalizable, um, pop them up to the Ontolog list. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Bill. Thank you very much. Okay. See you, guys. That's it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.